Hello. Hello. It all sounds weird. Hi, Louis Theroux here. How are you doing? Welcome to my podcast, exclusively on Spotify, and called, appropriately enough, The Louis Theroux Podcast. Today we have a very special guest called Nick Cave, the amazing, the one and only, legendary, I overuse that word, but in this case it's deserved, musician, screenwriter, film scorer, novelist, agony uncle, hierophant, that means a person, especially a priest, who interprets sacred mysteries or esoteric principles. He has a new book out called Faith, Hope and Carnage, co-authored with Sean O'Hagan. In fact, it takes the form of a number of conversations that Sean and Nick have together, reflecting on art, life, artistry, loss. Nick lost his son, Arthur, in 2015. Arthur was just 15 years old. Unbelievably and tragically, he lost a second son, Jethro, in 2022. So bereavement is among the subjects under discussion. And moving out of grief, well, what, how, how, he, he's going to put it better than that. He also has a website called The Red Hand Files where he answers letters, questions from fans and people in general who are looking for guidance on any matter, sometimes deeply intimate questions about life and other times more trivial and lighthearted questions. I was a little bit intimidated to speak to Nick. I don't know if that comes across or not. His catalogue is so immense and the esteem in which he's held is so high, I wanted to bring my A-game so you can be the judge of whether or not I succeeded. We recorded it face-to-face at the Spotify studios. Picture this, he strides in looking a bit like a goth undertaker in a dark, exquisitely tailored suit, shirt unbuttoned, maybe one button further than I would ever risk, and... I think there's a little chain around his neck and black hair swept back like a vision of the ageing Heathcliff in his Sunday best. A lot of different references in there. So that's the scene. That's the mise-en-scene. There's some strong language, references to death, as mentioned, and, you know, what can I say? He did an album called The Murder Ballads, so it'll be those kinds of themes that we'll be talking about. All of that and much, much more coming up. Here he is. How are you doing? I'm very well. Good to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Where am I? There, it's perfect. How are you liking being back in London? I like it. I like London. I like London a lot, actually. There's always something... Where are you in London? London? Yeah. I grew up in London, and then I've lived in New York, and I've lived in L.A., but I'll probably die in London. I don't mean to sound ominous, but I feel like when I'm in other cities or living elsewhere... I'm still kind of gathering experiences, travel in the biggest sense. And then when I'm in London, I sort of think, I just feel like I'm peering down the corridor with an unvaried sense of days rolling out in the same city, in the same place. Yeah, my sort of destination is, in that respect, is Australia, that eventually 
I'll end up in Australia and kind of quietly die there. But Do you think you'll go back at some point? Well, then? you know, I have a very strong yearning for Australia. You know, through lockdown, it was really very powerful. And maybe that was because I was in the middle of a crisis, existential mm. crisis, and there was just a feeling of needing to run back to mummy or something like that. But I, I do feel that I belong in Australia. Do you have a place there in Australia? No. Well, I used to stay with my mother, but she died through COVID. Not of COVID, but she was a very old lady. I'm sorry to hear that. Did she still live in, I'm going to say this wrong, Wangaratta? Wangaratta? No, no, she lived in Melbourne. I lived in Wangaratta till I was, I think, 12, and then left and went to Melbourne. She was the librarian and my father was the English literature teacher and maths teacher at Wangaratta High School where I attended, which was not a good combination because I was kind of mischievous, let's say, by nature. Well, we could say that. (laughs) I had a kind of occasional tendency towards the tyrannical in my need for attention and that got me into all sorts of trouble and I was permanently sitting in the corridor outside the headmaster's office with both my parents walking past me, shaking their heads. Yeah. So they were happy to get rid of me and send me to boarding school in in Melbourne where we ended up living, and my mother lived there for the rest of her life. While we're on the subject... (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Well, because you've taken us back in time, which is great. It must have been quite weird for your parents, like having a child at the school who was acting up the whole time. Do you think they found it embarrassing? we, We were all there. You know, there was four of us. So she had a bunch of children who were all pretty free-spirited, if Mm. you like. There's a theme throughout your work, and I know you've been through a lot of changes, but going back years, you had a reputation for being, what's the word, I suppose uh, chaotic or confrontational or dangerous. But I also get the feeling that there's a lot of love that you had for your parents growing up. You felt loved, you felt attended to and cared for. So I'm just wondering where you see that disruptive energy. Where did it come from? Yeah. Yeah, look, I wasn't a depressed kid. I had a very loving family. I wasn't an angry kid, but I was a rebellious, contrary sort of creature. And that was coddled by my parents, or at least certainly my mother, that there wasn't anything that I could do wrong enough for her to see as my fault. So she was always on my side, no matter how clearly it was my fault. So there's something in that, you know, for someone who goes on to lead a life that maybe was quite dangerous, you know, as a drug addict for a long time and these sorts of things, that there was always that sense that my mother was there, regardless of my kind of condition of being. So it was a saving thing, you know. So... This is exciting for me. You're a high-caliber guest. Oh, really? Yeah. And I don't mean to suggest that you're slumming. All our guests are high-caliber. But for me, like, I have to confess, like, I wasn't as across or as immersed in your work as I, I don't know, I should have been. So the last three or four weeks has been a chance to dive deep into your catalogue. I also read a novel of yours called The Death of Bunny Munro, which I wouldn't mind talking to you about if you're up for it. Sure, yeah. But it's been a huge pleasure digging into your music and as a music fan and as a fan of many of the people I would see now as your peers, Lou Reed, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Van Morrison, you know, you're up there with those guys. I don't mean to sort of like kiss your bum too much, but um, but it is what it is. Uh, a lot what's your editor's there. name? Paul. Paul, leave that bit in, please. <laughs> 
I'm fine with that, by the way. <laughs> but you're a slightly different generation to some of those peers, having come up kind of in the ashes of punk and post-punk. Yeah, right? that's right. And not just that, but also in Australia, which, you know, whether you like it or not, is a different place. It's a different cultural environment than LA or New York or London or wherever. So dialing back, I am going to get to the point. Back in the early days... It was quite a wild outfit, the birthday party, yeah. this group that you were part of. You know, you're known for being confrontational. And the tag, what was the tag that you were given? The most dangerous? No, it was, it was, we went on tour in Europe and the promoters put out a poster which said the most violent band in the world. Right. That's which we, which, which <laughs> we, we didn't come up with that idea, right? Which didn't do us much good. And the concerts were very different, certainly had something to do with being called that, that it attracted certain people to our concerts and the concerts were very violent, you know. But initially, I think it came out of being a band that was casting around for what we wanted to be. We were sort of caught in the middle of things. You know, I'd actually grown up listening to a lot of progressive rock music, got records by Iggy Pop and David Bowie and these sorts of things. And this went on to the MC5 and I got involved in punk rock. So... There was a huge anticipation for me as an Australian, someone living in Melbourne, to get out of Melbourne and go to London and discover what for us was this incredible place where everything happened. And we would sit around, you know, reading the NME and looking at all the gigs we could go to. And we were all dying to get out of Melbourne and get to London and enter into this sort of artistic paradise. Sadly, by the time we got over there... Things in London had kind of died. The whole punk thing had died. And that outrage that existed on stage, that us-against-them attitude, the desire to offend, all of these sorts of things had kind of dissipated into something that was more post-punk, shoegazing kind of mm -hmm. thing. So we came along and saw these groups, and I think we were really upset by that. We were bored, to be honest. And I think the birthday party, that kind of visceral, angry, confrontational thing sort of burst open because of not just our living situation, which was diabolical. We just simply had no money and we're getting no work, but also that we felt we'd come to London. It was essentially the most depressing place on earth with nothing really good to see, in our view. And I think we really responded to that in a very visceral way. The little press that we did get didn't understand what a band like the Birthday Party was and that we were coming from Australia and what kind of music we played. So would these shows in Melbourne, before you left, would they be pretty violent too? I mean, they weren't violent in that way, but we were doing our thing. But it really ramped up after a while, R ramped up over here. I don't want to make a huge thing out of it, but I'm curious to know whether actually you're getting in punch-ups with fans coming on stage and and yeah. and it's a kind of consensual, yeah. canalian <laughs> ritualistic kind punch of mayhem. Up. Yeah. But no one's getting badly hurt. I don't know. We got badly hurt sometimes. Really? There was a sense of abandon about things that has something to do with what music did for us. It was a freeing thing. And we weren't interested in the sort of struggle that young bands normally go through with getting a record company and all of that sort of stuff. We were just this live band that went on stage and went berserk and enjoyed that aspect. And other people enjoyed it too. A kind of chaos, 
Did you ever go to hospital? Yeah, from being cut and stuff, yeah. Really? During yeah. shows? And it felt like... Yeah, cut on bottles and things like Seriously? that. Seriously? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think a lot of musicians end up having to go to hospital for one thing or another. I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> but the meanwhile, as I understand it, the band was pretty tight. Because the other reference I was thinking about was, I mean, musically, it's a million miles away, but Gigi Allen. Yeah, we, we weren't like that. He would go up yeah. and smash himself in the yeah, face and like, poo on the stage. Like no. We had uh, Mick Harvey, was one of the members yeah. of the band. He's an extremely good, solid musician, and he knocked us into shape. You know, not me particularly, because I was a kind of wild card within the band to some degree, in that I didn't have the same musical prowess as the other members of the band. So I just sort of did my thing. But they were tight. They were really tight and played quite complicated music, the birthday party in its way. So there was that. It wasn't just we went on stage and smashed our instruments and cut ourselves up. In that period, it would have been the beginning of kind of new romantic. Like, was it bands like Ultravox and Duran Duran or, or was it something else? Because it all went quite yachts and Rio fairly yeah, we, quickly. Yeah, we didn't get in, into, the, into that stuff, really. <laughs> but, I mean, nor did we have any interest in it. I think part of being in the birthday party was, a, at least for me and I think for Roland Howard, I think Mick he was... He was your guitarist back he was, then? He was sadly deceased. Exactly. Mick Harvey, who was the guy I kind of started the band with to some degree, he was more out there looking at other bands and that sort of stuff. But... I was very shut down and just into my own thing. And actually that's the way it's always been to some degree. To this day I'm not part of a scene. I haven't been involved in any. I personally have been someone I think that's just gone on my way and done things and there are some moments that the world kind of catches me and I'm suddenly fashionable for a while and then the world goes on to other things and I become a kind of anachronism and it goes up and down ebbs and flows. But you've also been on top of the pops with Kylie Minogue. Yeah. Twice? Yeah, talk about descending into the bowels of hell. Yeah. If you ever wanted to see just what young girls are like, be a kind of slightly ageing rock star and go on. Seriously, because they're like, I've come for Kylie well, well, and, and it, it I'm looks getting like Bella they're Lugosi. All, they're, yeah, they're just, who are you? <laughs> they was, weren't actually heckling you, were they? They weren't just nasty little girls. Who were there for Kylie and just thought, who is this dreadful Funereal drug addict? Drug ravaged, <laughs> <laughs> reanimated Mon- mon- mummy. Monster. In all seriousness, as someone who'd sort of been in the, in the world of pop and rock, but then here you are kind of at its bubblegum core, right? Is it mixed emotions? Are you just happy to be no, there? We were, we were loving all that. Really? We loved all that. And Kylie loved it too. Kylie was... Um, it was a song called Where the Wild Roses Grow. Yeah, a murder ballad. A murder ballad. Yeah. About which, you stoving in, not you, a character. A character. Get that out there. It ends with, uh, it's not about that, <laughs> but it ends with the character killing the... Um, his beloved. Yeah, his beloved. And it's yeah. a duet. And in my opinion, it's not a bad murder ballad as far as murder ballads go. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's and lovely. It was quite something at the time for Kylie to take on, you know. I certainly wasn't in showroom condition. Were you still active in your, what's the word? Yeah. Usage? Yeah, yeah. No way. Yeah. Her management were like, this is really a bad idea. We were a bunch of dark, drug-addicted monstrosities all Mm -hmm. sort of scowling in the studio. But she was determined to do that, and she was this extraordinary 
presence came in and just sang the song really beautifully. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever talked to Kylie or no. met her or anything like that. She sort of radiates a lightness of spirit and displayed an enormous amount of courage, I think, and the record did really well. And we ended What was up the courage? To sort of walk into a studio amongst a whole bunch of degenerate... Etiolated, yeah, vampiric... Exactly. Succubi. I think that's the female. Is it? Yeah. What's the in, male? In, Incubus in, is... Incubi, yeah. Her management were obviously slightly nervous about what was going on with our princess, but we just became extremely good friends. And despite maybe the dubious nature of the song, it was, for me, uh, part of my career that I really have extremely fond memories of, and so does she, and we've stayed very good friends. Is it weird being on top? I know it's a stupid question, but is it just your, your cattle? Here you do the thing and then off you go. It's got a basic TV, is it? I can't remember too much about it. Do you think, think you were high when you did it? Yeah, for sure, of course. Really? I couldn't have done it otherwise. I just remembered a lot of rather sour young girls sort of not finding me attractive in the way that they all seem to find other people attractive on top of the pops. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't the top of the pops bit that was of any real interest to me, actually, apart from that it's just its perverse nature, but it, it was getting the opportunity to work with Kylie, who, who I'd always admired. She was like an a, Australian icon. I just always felt it would be nice to slow her down a little bit and, right. and to do something that was at odds with the way she appeared, and it was quite beautiful. It's normal in the world of the kind of people I speak to that I look at, you know, what they've done and there's a kind of wilderness period, like there are fallow years when they kind of fall out of fashion or they fall by the wayside. Correct me if I'm wrong, when I look at your trajectory, there just seems to have been this very long kind of crescendo, like in the sense of a steady ramping up of interest in what you're doing. Is There's never been a time when it felt like so far as I can tell, you lost a record deal or I couldn't no. get, you know, you fell so far outside the wayside that... There was no coming back. Yeah, you yeah, couldn't that, work. That, that happens, doesn't it? Yeah. I've been, I think, extremely conscious of that, of the resting on your laurels thing. I know that in a way there's no coming back. For me, it's always felt like that. If I stop, I'll like it too much. And once that happens, it's just too difficult to get it going again, get the whole thing going again. So even in the days that we're describing earlier, I worked. And that's the thing that's always been something that I've done regularly and sustained me, that I get up in the morning and I get to work. Even through 20 years of heroin addiction, I always still did that, even if the work was nodding off at the typewriter, you know. Right kind of waking up with the keys imprinted into my forehead. It was still the work, if you understand what I mean. That's always been the case. It was the case yesterday and will be the case tomorrow, you know. Six days a week, is that right? Yeah. You take Sundays off. I found six days a week difficult to take and now I tend to do seven. Come on. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> But, you know, the creative life is, by its very nature, internal, and you live in your head and you live inside your ideas and you, you live inside the artificial world that you're creating at the time. It's not an ideal situation to work all the time and not live outside your job because 
you know, you need to find things that inspire you, you know. Yeah, although you're at risk of making it sound like it's just fuel for the creative engine, whereas one would hope that it's an end in, its, in itself. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I totally agree. I totally agree. I mean, it certainly has become more that way to me. And I think that when my son died, one of the things was a visceral shock at the way I was so self-interested mm-hmm. in the sense that it was the work and after that, things change in that, in that respect. I still work in the same way, but I don't have that idea that the work is the important thing, you know, that everything must be sort of sacrificed on the altar of your genius. You know, I don't have that feeling at all, really. On the subject of um, doing the work, even for the years that you were dealing with heroin, I think you also talk in the book about the fact that heroin actually had paradoxical kind of ordering function or yeah. in your life that it kind of imposed a routine yeah Is that right? it's it's simplifying you know it takes away all the multitude of peripheral stress that we go through as human beings where we constantly have these little anxieties going on about this thing and it wipes all that away and you just have a kind of polarized life you're either stoned or you're sick and you spend your time trying not to be sick and trying to be stoned. And there's a great ordering that happens within mm. your life, which is why they call it like a habit. You get yourself a habit and it sets up a weird structure around your life that makes things quite simple to some degree at the expense, of course, of everything else, everything else in your life. You just need to score if you have to score and that's the end of it. Forget anything else. So you wake up in the morning and that's the first thing you need to do and you need to do that at the end of the day as well. And so you just go around and around in this thing and it's not like some of the other drugs which are pure chaos. I never really got on with a lot of drugs because they messed with your head too much. Mm. Like I couldn't smoke pot or take acid because they just got in the way. I couldn't trust what was going on in my head at all. So aside from alleviating the sickness of withdrawal, what do you think heroin was doing for you? Yeah, that's a very good question. It's obviously doing something, but after a while, that question goes out the window because you just have to keep taking the drug or else you're going to get sick. Why I started taking it, I would find that quite difficult to answer other than I actually just thought it was a great idea at the time. Like, it felt like the ultimate antisocial gesture. Quite solitary, was it, basically? It it is, exactly. You don't, um, you know, I think a lot of people drink because it has some benefits. You know, you you go to a party and you Mm -hmm. have a few drinks and you become a more interesting person and you're a little bit more fluid and relaxed and you can chat up a woman easily or a man or whatever. Heroin is not something that you do because it is a social thing. You become quite insular in a way. So I don't know. I don't really have a very good answer to that, the why of it. Also, it just felt good at the time. Mm. In the book, there's a lot of different aspects to it. One of them is this sort of yearning for kind of, I suppose it's a religious dimension to life. In fact, a good portion of it. I still uh, have that rational, sceptical mind inside of me. But I do find the religious experience to be 
extremely interesting. And so I come to it with both a sense of belief, I would say, and unbelief. And there's a sort of battle, I think, that goes on between the two that is extremely fertile and a creative space, much more creative, I think, than a point-blank rejection of spiritual things. I find that being open to the intimations and yearnings that we have for something larger than what may empirically exist is extraordinarily creative and worth, at the very least, investigating. And so when I say that I go to church, which I do go to church, in some way I find that that is a place where I can do that kind of thing. And it's a place that is also accepting of both my unbelief and my belief. So you go to church fairly regularly? Yeah. But you don't call yourself a Christian? I feel very uncomfortable about that. I love that because most people who call themselves Christian don't go to church. (laughs) Right? You flipped it. I have to remember that. I flipped it. (laughs) People get hung up on the idea there's two registers, sort of what is factually, scientifically true and that which is demonstrably false. And in fact, between the two... There's a world. There are many worlds, yeah, many there universes. Yeah. There's the world of not just metaphor, irony, religious thought, myth, but many others besides in which we interpret and understand our experience. Yeah. I find that there are intimations within the world that exist somewhere between what is rational and what is kind of woo-woo mm-hmm. that are worth investigating. Feelings, softly spoken, whispered hunches about things that exist somewhere within there that feel very real to me. They feel like a kind of a truth. They're not provable, but they have a spiritual dimension. And they are not just present, but also extraordinarily helpful to you if you are going through difficult things. And this idea that religion is a crutch for people who who are too afraid that there's nothing else other than what we can empirically prove or what is rational. I find that it is that. It is a crutch. And I don't see a problem with that at all. I think we need, to some extent, these things. You know, and I get annoyed at those people that consider going around and kind of kicking the crutches out from under people who need them as some kind of virtue or some kind of truth-telling I find that is extremely unhuman. Stop me if I'm... Uh, no, because my coffee's kicking in and I've got to be careful that I don't talk too much. But when you were <laughs> saying it's a crutch, but I was thinking, yeah, it's a crutch to some maybe, and then to others it's a rocket ship that can take them to space, right? And, you know, when Christianity took hold in the Roman Empire... I think a big part of it was the amazement that the Romans experienced when they saw Christians going joyfully to their death, being fed to lions, and to these sort of secular, debauched Romans. Seeing these Christians kind of being chomped up with smiles on their faces must have been an extraordinary thing. And, well, it toppled the empire. But isn't that amazing to to think that the intoxication of faith or whatever you call it, its ability to supercharge you with yeah. unbelievable qualities of strength and resilience. And it does provide that. Yeah. You know, it provides something that, in my view, the secular world loses out on in some way, living within the sort of tyranny of what is rational. And I just think there can be a little bit of give and take in these matters. 
Can I share one other quick thing? Yeah. A quote that I always liked is um, William Burroughs, the writer, was experimenting with a Ouija board, and someone asked him, does it seem to be objectively true? Like, objectively, does something seem to be there? And he said, objective, subjective, what's the difference? Yeah. Which is kind of a beautiful paradox. In the end, like, maybe all of that's slightly beside the point. Yeah. It becomes an unnecessary conversation after a while. I really have a lot of time for, I'm not one of them, unfortunately, but I really have a lot of time for these people who are just comfortable in their faith and they just go about their business and they go to church and it's no big thing. And I look at them with a certain amount of envy. In fact, I look at them as a kind of destination, at least, you know, that we can lay down the struggle or whatever the expression is. But I very much struggle with the whole thing. What do you get out of going to church specifically? Because I could imagine maybe the sermon might be off-putting or aspects of the devotion might feel like a bad fit. I mean, you could just read the Bible, (laughs) those parts that you enjoy. That's right, and I do. I do. I always have, by the way. And I've actually always gone to church off and on. But what I do get is a feeling of going to a place that's existed for 2,000 years that accepts me fundamentally as I am, where I can take certain feelings that I have and certain yearnings and that they sit within a kind of structure where I can allow myself to comfortably indulge in these yearnings. And I find that I go into church as a sceptic, generally, with a little kind of Christopher Hitchens inside me, Mm -hmm. going, what are you doing? But leaving with a sense, a feeling of uplift about things, a feeling of hope, of something that I don't experience in the same way in the secular world. That's not to say there are things that don't get said that seem completely absurd, but at the same time, I like the weird stuff. The whole Christian story and the fact that 2,000 years of history are built upon the crucifixion of this minor political agitator Mm -hmm. in the most wretched of ways, that the way we function as human beings in the West to this day are energised by that moment. Which parts of the Bible do you find yourself going back to? I read the Gospels, you know, Mm. a lot, and Paul and stuff, but it's really this haunted story of Christ that really has always, as a child, resonated. There's a pretty good book. We're probably talking about this way too much, but that's fine. (laughs) There's a pretty good book by A.N. Wilson, his biography of Jesus. Have you read that? I have, yeah. It's that idea that when you read it, you realize, wow, he was kind of a local figure. Like he was like, I don't know what the rock equivalent would be. Like he was big in his local scene up in Nazareth. And the after effects of his teachings are to a great extent a result of Paul, obviously, travelling through the Roman Empire and, in a way, are a testament to Roman roads and the Roman polity and its ability to spread letters around. And then I kind of cheekily tweeted, they should really call it Paulianity, in the sense that he was kind of taking elements of it and saying, but this is for everyone, this isn't just for Jews and translating it for the greater public. And the parts that I go back to insofar as I do, are his letters where he's talking, I think it's the letter to the Romans, where, and yeah. there's a particular one where he says, everything that I am, I hate. And he's kind of dealing with his 
disgusting and depraved impulses and how much he grapples with them. Yeah, this is a beautiful thing, the idea of our brokenness, which is embodied in the figure of Christ. When I talk about this with you, what worries me often is that I sound like a Christian talking about Christ, but I don't actually come to it in that way. I'm (laughs) simply, you know... Why would that worry you? It worries me because... You know, it worries me a little bit. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to come off like Cliff Richard. Well, there is that. But what I'm trying to say is that there's something about that brokenness yeah. that I respond to and that Paul responds to, that it's a universal thing. And the idea of a original sin is something to do with our flawed humanity. We are all that way, all of us. We are broken people. We are broken things living with other broken things. And this is a very profound thought for me in the sense that it becomes this, uh, yeah, this, this, yeah. What was your editor's name again? (laughs) Paul. (laughs) Paul, is it Paul? (laughs) Yeah, do the Pauline thing. (laughs) It's all balance. Mm. I find that with myself, you know, as an artist myself that has a public image, it's all a matter of balance. I have the red hand files and they're a kind of balancing act too. Yeah, let's like talk that. about that. How did this come about, the red hand files? The red hand files is, I don't know, call it a website, is it? Mm-hmm. That I would you, call it a website. That you can subscribe to for free. It's essentially began as an ask me anything type of situation. So people could write in and ask questions, and I would take one of those questions and answer it. It was a small thing, and it was a fan-based thing to begin what with. What year was this? I think it's in its fifth year. So it would have been around 2017. Just to get this in the room, in 2015, your son Arthur yeah. died in a horrific accident yeah. in Brighton, which was obviously a life-changing event for you yes. and for Susie. So this is in the backdrop to That's right. everything yeah. that comes afterwards, but specifically the red hand files. So after my son died, you know, I'm a public figure and it was a public thing. And I got an enormous amount of mail that came to me and Susie from people that essentially said, we know how you feel. This sort of thing has happened to us. Or look, I lost my husband last week. In fact, the letters were just addressed to like Nick Cave Brighton. You know, and they just managed to find their way to me. And it was difficult for us to understand at the time, but it was a way of drawing ourselves out of the total despair of the moment in time. And a kind of understanding, I think a fundamental understanding that we were kind of cohabiting a world of grievers. It was like the club you don't want to belong to. And so I think in response to that, on some level, I started up the red hand files. In the back of my mind, I was trying to work out a way where I could sit down and articulate these things that were happening to me and Susie and my family in general in a careful and considered way. Initially, the questions were like, what's your favourite band and who are your influences and that sort of stuff? But within those questions, there were other questions that were asking, look, this has happened to me, what do I do? And I started answering those questions. It was for me, it was for me to work out how I felt about these things as well. And this just sort of snowballed and it's just grown over the years. And it's something that I take really seriously 
I read every question and I answer one a week or something like that. How many come in? I guess it's about like three or four hundred a week or something like that. You couldn't read all of those. Yeah, you you just sit there and and read them. I do. Really? It's like I do it at the end of the day and some are long, you know, some are one line, you know, do you like Fleetwood Mac or something? So they're not all, you know. Yes. Of course. Rumours. <laughs> what what's your favourite film? And you just said Blonde. Yeah, I was just... That was you being obtuse, was it? Because you did the soundtrack. That was by well, your friend Well, I did, I did the soundtrack and Blonde came under scathing. It was being given a critical yeah. kicking for alleged crimes against gender politics. I would say critical in inadverted commas. Yeah. It was it's about uh, Marilyn Monroe. It's, it's about Marilyn Monroe, and it's an extraordinary film. It's a masterpiece. And, and actually, many filmmakers, people who actually know about film and who actually make films and can see things beyond ideological points of view, see it as a technical masterpiece. And I think things are shifting around as they do a little bit in that respect. But at the time I wrote that, it was a cultural event in terms of how <laughs> angry people had gotten about this film. Well, we're off on a tangent, but let's yeah. enjoy it because it was around the same time that Dharma came out. Yeah, we had... Which you did the music for yeah, as well. Yeah. So you yeah, we were sort of a, adjacent to... to <laughs> you got a double helping of yeah. whatever you would call that. Is that a... I mean, for me, for me, I'm more sympathetic towards the criticisms about Dharma because it was family members of the victims that were coming out and it showed some perverse interest in this character that may have been unhealthy. I don't know. That's a good example of... Because I know this... It's uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable. There's there's this question around the freedom of the artist and it's become a cliché, a totally understandable one, of some element of the artistic community to say absolute freedom for the artist and how dare you censor me. But the question's a bit more nuanced than that and I think Dharma's a good example of a piece of art, if I can call it that, where there are aspects to it that you could see and, and exactly as you express and, and think, well, that, these are real people with real feelings seeing themselves depicted or seeing their yeah. loved ones depicted. And yeah. and actually, is art worth that? Like, yeah. what is the ethical standard here for what we think is permissible? Do, do, does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And, and for me, I totally understand that. But I think the other side of the coin is worse, that if we start imposing censorship around these sorts of things. I don't know where it stops. I don't know who makes the decisions. Those decisions in small ways are being made all the time, right? Like publishers are deciding to publish this book, but not that book. Or someone at Netflix says, we're going to do an adaptation of Dharma, but we don't want to do Hitler, the child years. Do you know what I mean? Because who needs that? In one sense, that censorship, in another sense, that's just making a series of decisions Civility. about what you yeah. think is yeah. morally, artistically interesting. It's true. That is true. By the way, Hitler, the child years. Could be interesting. You just thought of that. You midwifed that, and that could be Oh, uh, you can have that one. <laughs> you can do the music. Yeah, I'll do the music. Anyway, I sound like I'm sort of defending censorship, which isn't really my intention. It's more that sometimes we're invited to see these things in black and white, and there's more going on. I don't get too riled up about... I mean, there was Delilah, the song Delilah. Yes. There was a, a question be- about be- this on the It was on a the, beautiful example the because the Welsh choirs who traditionally have sung Delilah, which is the Tom Jones murder ballad where the woman is murdered. I never even knew that was what it was about. Oh, it's totally about yeah, that. Yeah, because it sounds like a big jaunty seesawing... Yeah, I mean, waltz. it is. It's a terrible song on any level, as far as I'm concerned, even though it won the Ivan Novella 
award twice. Anyway, it's been banned in the sense that these Welsh choirs are no longer allowed to sing this song at Welsh rugby matches. And what I was trying to say is that there are some things that I can't get too riled up in these situations because just the thing that they're banning is just bad. And it is kind of offensive, even for someone who's written a lot of murder ballads themselves. As a murder ballad... Got an entire album entitled Murder Ballads. That's right. So so as a murder ballad, it's just bad. So I'm quite happy that... And, and I'm also kind of happy that music has that capacity to outrage. You described it as the ultimate compliment to be banned, <laughs> That's right, to be censored. Yeah. yeah. You've sailed fairly close to the wind, I would say. Is that fair? In terms of being prepared to push your artistry into terrain that people might take offence at. I mean, you've said yourself, right, that you've regarded it as a sacred duty to offend at one time. Yeah. You know, I grew up, made music through the punk rock times, and I think that was the number one thing we did as punks. You know, we were applauded for doing this. So I was sort of raised to see that art was something that got up people's noses, that confronted people, that challenged people that kind of push people out of their complacency. These were self-evident virtues. And so the idea that our music, our art, is to be defanged in this way, you know, it does raise my hackles to some degree. Have you ever been the subject of a kind of... This was before the pylon, and that was why I say we were sailing close to the wind. Were there times when you felt more that people were coming for you or that... You were at risk of like, <laughs> pushing too far? or you were it's, at... it's quite funny because, you know, I mean, some of my early lyrics with the birthday party, the murder ballads record, this kind of thing, you know, there was violence towards women. But there was actually violence towards everybody. They mm. were just violent records. And there were heroic women and female murderers and all sorts of stuff going on in that record and, and songs before that. But I'm not personally a misogynist. You know, I don't have those inclinations, but I like to write songs that were violent. In those days, I just enjoyed the thrill of language being able to write about violent things in the same way as maybe a thriller writer likes to write about violent things too. I liked what violent language can do within a song because it always sat slightly uncomfortably in a song because songs seem to be, by their very nature, virtuous things, let's say. And so if they had a kind of dissonance or a violence within them, that was exciting to me at the time. And I'm laughing because someone wrote in saying, you know, I I really like your music, I'm a woman, but I don't like the fact that you built your throne on the bodies of dead women. Well, it's a compliment (laughs) with a little sting in the tail. You're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. Hi, I'm Louis Theroux and you're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. And now back to my conversation with Nick Cave. Can you unpack it at all? Like I have my own thoughts on where the power of art that rests on difficult emotion comes from. I mean, it sort of goes to Bunny Munro as well, which is your novel very much inside the head of a predatory 
rapist, yeah, really. A sex maniac. He's a sex maniac. I mean, in the old school. One of the things I admired was, though, that he definitely. He's dark. It's beyond like, oh, I get it away as often as I can. It's that plus he had sex with a heroin addict who's sort of nodding out at one point. I sort of, I think I admired your willingness to make the central character disgusting to the point where I was a little uncomfortable. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's extremely dark. It's a comic novel too. Very much so. And but, beautiful. And I, I, but, by the but, way, I wasn't but, making but, a criticism. No, no, no. I, yeah. I, I don't mind what anybody says about that book. The central character is a very dark individual and his behaviour is pretty disgusting. But at the same time, he's looking after a child who's also called Bunny, Bunny Jr. Who's and, also inhabited in the novel. He's a POV within the novel. Yes, that's right. And I just love the dynamic of that book where we know what the central character is up to. Yet the son, who's nine, just thinks his dad's the best dad ever. And the enjoyment, I think, of the book is that tension that happens between these two things, that he becomes progressively darker, his actions become worse and more and more desperate because he's not a good sex maniac. His conquests a junkie that's overdosing, as you said, and so forth. So he's not good at his job. And yet his son seems to love him more and more. And there was something about that that I found hugely enjoyable writing about. It's not for everyone. Did you get any pushback on that? I mean, the reviews that I saw were positive. Yeah, they were good reviews, but I did readings and Q&As and invariably people didn't like it and would stand up and say that. But I don't mind that. Yeah. I guess the bigger point then is where do you see the value residing in art that feels transgressive or discomforting or in what way is that, in your view, enriching? You mean why is that more enriching than bland? Well, that's one way of putting it. I go back to the thrill I got as a child and as a young man of stumbling on a book that genuinely shocked me, that confronted me, that changed my ideas about things that created, you know, terrible cognitive dissonance around things. And there's a bunch of those. You know, I remember as a child reading Love Story, the book, I can't remember who wrote it, there was a film made of it. Right, famous you know, film fa- with, famous, uh, was it so, Ryan O'Neill? A kind of soppy romance. Yeah. And I was just reading it and I don't know, I was left around the house and I was reading it. And in the middle of this soppy romance is, a, you know, a four-letter word. There's a hockey match between uh, two teams and the lead character, the Ryan O'Neill character, says fucking Canuck. And I remember reading that and it just stopped me in my tracks and it was uh, an extraordinary feeling. Like I was shocked to read this word. It was the first time I'd ever read that word. I was only little, you know. Fucking, not Canuck, which is probably more yes, obscure. Probably is, well, it's, it's <laughs> obscure and probably more offensive. than Again, It's the, Canadian, term for Canadian. Yeah, I think. You know, I remember that to this day, the shock and, and the thrill and the pleasure of having my worldview shattered to some degree by a book. And I've continued to love to read books that challenge me in that way. And so I find strictures around language where you can say this and you can't say this fundamentally works against what the potential of art is, which is to challenge your ideas about things. And it's this troubling of the waters that is the self-evident value of art. And that if we're to put 
art through a kind of righteous sieve and take all the unrighteous bits out, what we get is just the bland and, as you said, the morally obvious. We are quite disgusting people, if we're honest. Not me, but other people. That's a joke. (laughs) You know, if we peer into our dark hearts, we're revolting. And when I read something that reflects some aspect of that, I feel I can breathe because I sort of feel less alone. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense, yeah. And that if we feel as though we're always on our best behaviour and that anything we say or think, that it's visible to everyone and everyone's going to interrogate it for its righteousness, then that's insane-making. I mean, that's an impossible standard and suffocating. It's anti-art, as far as I'm concerned. I'll give you another example. I don't know if you know the book that came out some years ago called Go the Fuck to Sleep. Did you know I that? remember that, yeah. It's a beautiful, it was a kid's, beautiful it was kids, a kid's book. book for adults. Yeah, well, no, it's a kid's book that adults could read their right. kids, right? And you read it to your 10-year-olds or something like that. I didn't think and it, you were supposed to. I thought you were just supposed to read it as an adult. No, no. As oh, a I kind of I, like a... I certainly um, didn't take it a stress that release. Maybe, maybe that, maybe I did the wrong like thing. It was like the cows in the pasture <clears throat> and the sheep are in the meadow go the fuck to sleep. Yeah, yes, it's, yeah, exactly. But it, it goes a little bit longer with the traditional, yeah. you know, and your kids are sitting there. I remember reading that to the twins. When it got to the bit where it said, go the fuck to sleep, the look on the kids' faces was just never forget it. They just looked at each other. And even though they'd heard that, they hear that language everywhere else, they suddenly discovered it in a book. Mm. And How old were they at this time? Yeah, I don't know, eight or something like that. It Everyone parents exciting. differently. It was exciting, right? Yeah. Maybe I, I shouldn't have been reading the book to them. <laughs> <laughs> that hadn't even occurred to me, to be honest. I think that that probably made them want to go and read books. Yeah. You know. I remember as a kid, my dad had, it was a dictionary of slang and unconventional English. And you could look up fuck, and there was fuck, fuck a duck, fuck you, Jack, I'm all right. There was a whole page of fuck expressions. And age nine or ten, I just loved looking at it and thinking, wow, that's, that's so bad. Yeah. I have, for whatever reason, responded as a child and throughout life to sort of badness in things. You know, whether it's watching Johnny Cash as a... I don't know, nine-year-old in Australia on the Johnny Cash show, suddenly realising that music could be, like, bad, like he's like an outlaw guy. It excited something. It's always excited something in me. Well, props to Johnny Cash for among his many accomplishments. One was in the early 90s when there was a frenzy about gangster rap, and he would always pipe up and say, you know, it's no different from shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Mm. He went out to bat for free expression at a time when, I think, Rap in general was very embattled because they were pushing back on cop killer and yeah. fuck the police. Yeah, but shot a man in Reno just to watch him die is quite a line. It's a great line. Yeah, just jumps out of that song. His version of your song, Mercy Seat, yeah, is incredible. Yeah, it's really beautiful. All my life, been a huge Johnny Cash fan, and I was on holiday in some remote place in the south of France, and Rick Rubin, who produced the Johnny Cash records, just rang up out of the blue and said, look, I'm wondering if it's okay if Johnny Cash record The Mercy Seat. And and, uh, I left a long pause and sort of went, okay, that's fine. (laughs) Sure. You decided to play it cool. I played it cool. But it's an incredible version, really uh, amazing. We were talking about 
the Red Hand Files. What was the origin of the name Red Hand Files? I think it comes from Red Right Hand. Your song? Yeah. Fans of Peaky Blinders will know it. Exactly. Opening of Peaky Blinders. It's got 78 million streams on Spotify I saw yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, that's good. That's pretty good. God, you're the bearer of good news. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. (laughs) It's a metaphor, and I should know this, in the song, what is the... It's taken from um, Milton. Yeah. Uh, Paul. (laughs) John Milton. (laughs) Paradise Lost. Yeah. I think so, yeah. I think it's it, it comes from Paradise Lost. <laughs> um, anyway. It's in your song, Red Right Hand. Yeah, and the song is a typical Nick Cave song that it characterised this sort of evil force that's travelling around the world, presenting himself as virtue. It sounds exactly like what we're talking about. That has hidden in his coat a red right hand, a blood-stained hand. Nice. And so... The red hand files come from that. How does that sit alongside your other work? What does it do for you emotionally? Well, to go back to what we were talking about initially with the whole thing, for me, it has become, didn't start this way, but it certainly is now, it is just this endless torrent of brokenness or longing or yearning for something. The questions are extraordinary. Some of them you read and people are talking about things especially in matters of grief, that have happened to them a long time ago. And they no longer have the opportunity, obviously, to be able to talk about these things. People are like, get on with your life. Of course, no one wants to sit around a dinner table with someone who's still going on about Mm. their partner or whatever who died two years ago or something like that. You need to move on. I understand that. But within the Red Hand Files is the idea that we don't move on on some level, for a lot of these letters. And people feel something about sitting down and writing something about their loved one who's died, passed away. And this is extraordinarily moving to me, being in the same boat, and kind of validating and educating, you know. And I developed, I think, a way of being able to write, not talk necessarily, but write about these matters in a articulate way. And that was really stepping right out of my comfort zone. I mean, hugely out of my comfort zone as a basically a musician. There was some pushback when I first started this, like, what are you doing? And who do you think you are? And what authority have you got to answer the question of a 16-year-old girl writing to you about feeling lonely or something like that? Who are you to be able to give your ideas about that or or whatever the questions might be? And, And I've always taken challenging questions to answer and troubling questions too. But I find that the questions themselves in some way validate the answer. The yearning within the questions give me the authority to actually be able to answer them. They've asked, right? So I'll give it a go. And the whole thing's turned into something, a huge part of my life, actually, that's as important as anything else. And it feels good to have stumbled on something that I have a deep personal attachment to that exists outside of what people might consider to be my job. So they really mean a lot to me. Do you think you've learned anything from doing it? Yeah, yeah. It's changed me as a human being. Do you, I mean, this might sound like a weird question, but have you ever done the Enneagram? 
This is a personality test. Yes, I read about it in the book. Exactly. Yeah, and you know, I made a note. It's an ancient Sufi personality test. Sean O'Hagan, who's your interlocutor, you should give him a shout out. Yes, he's he's a very brilliant man who had these conversations. Brilliant journalist. He says he did the test. I guess on your suggestion, one of the exchanges you have is about this. <laughs> yeah. It assigns you with a, a number between one and nine. and I'll each... do it. Before we put this out, I'll do it and we'll put it in the wrap-up. So you get assigned a number and each number you're called something like the searcher and mine is the challenger. I like that one. And there's a kind of line and at one end of your Enneagram line is the pathological state, which the pathological state of the challenger is the tyrant. And at the other end is someone who can be inspiring. That's the potential of the eight characteristic. And we tend to slip and slide our way up and down the line. And hopefully we make our journey through life towards the good end, not the unredeemed end, but the redeemed end. And I like this particular thing, even though I don't do this sort of stuff at all, ever. It's not like the stars or some horoscope or something like that. It's extraordinarily accurate. Do you do a questionnaire? How do yes, you, you, you answer a hundred questions. Oh, wow. Sounds and, a bit like um, Scientology. It's not like Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> you do it on your own and yeah. you forget about it a few weeks later. But what I'm trying to say is that it kind of describes a line of what your nature is. And I think that the red hand files for me have forced me begrudgingly down to the better end of my nature, which is more compassionate, more empathetic, stuff that doesn't come naturally to me. When I read a question, my initial response to that question is a little bit like my initial response to walking into a church. It's a response that's at its most stripped back before it's been kind of uh, enlivened by the spirit of compassion, shall we say. And that's something that doing these red hand files, this is what happens because I have to spend time with this person's question that's given in good faith I want to be an artist, but the ideas won't come. Or I lost my child three years ago and, you know, life has no meaning for me. To feel what that person might actually be feeling and to answer the question in a responsible, compassionate way. So in that respect, it's me having to practice the better part of my nature. And it's been good for me in that respect. My day job is actually documentaries. And so the the last 20 years, mainly what I've done is go around prisons, mental hospitals full of paedophiles, porn sets, religious cults, far-right communities. And where I've given expression or explored the darker parts of the human heart, it's sort of vicariously through the experience of me almost playing a straight man to their not whatever the opposite is. And I get to hide my more deviant or more questionable side, my embarrassing side. And I recognize in everyone I speak to something that I can relate to that feel, even if it's twisted, I only say that in the context of a slightly safer way of working, which isn't something I'm proud of. And I think what I admire in what you do is a willingness to be a little more risky. And forgive me for comparing myself. No, but it's, it's actually comparable in the sense that despite the chaos of the way things used to be when I was a musician with the birthday party and people see that as my big risk-taking time. It's actually, to me, it's not. And that I did something similar to you that I wrote character-driven songs. The lyrics were basically 
this guy called Fred went out and did this. And there was sort of a form of ventriloquil, ventriloquism where I sat Give it one more safe, go. Give it one, <laughs> ventriloquism. A, a, a form of <laughs> ventriloquism where I sat safely behind constructed characters in the same way as you oh, sit okay. safely behind these often problematic personalities mm. that you're talking to. But at some point I gave that up and started writing about myself the songs became much more personal and much more revealing. I took away the things that I hid behind. So you stand before the world in some way kind of naked, or I do these days. I know we've taken up a lot of your time. I wanted to... um, I should reflect the fact that you lost a second son. I mean, I feel I owe it to you and Jethro, what, 2022? Yeah, the thing with Jethro is that I don't really talk about him in respect to his mother, who just wants him to remain outside of the conversation, doesn't agree with the way I go about things. So at least for now, that's where Jethro lives. And it's very sad. It's very sad what happened with him. My condolences. With respect to Arthur... Obviously, you're at liberty to talk as little or as much as you would like about him or the experience of losing him. It's touched on in the book gracefully and and sensitively. I have a 15-year-old, I think I mentioned. Yeah. And the idea of, you know, any lessons to be learned, that sounds, again, a bit glib, but how you process an experience like that? I mean, I can't give any lessons on how to raise a child. I don't know what those lessons are, except that you just love your kids as much as you possibly can. That has to be the way we approach parenting because terrible things happen. Beyond that, both Susie and I, we know a lot about the kind of mechanics of grief, what happens, you know, and what are good things to do and what are not good things to do. And I think we've been through all those things. And the thing that comes through I think on the red hand files and it's in a way easier to talk about it in this way is that there's two streams that come in around grief both of them the despair is the same but some people have worked out how to work themselves out of it and have flourishing lives and other people have not they've simply hardened around the absence of the one that they love And this is a terrible situation to find yourself in because it requires, to some degree, an act of will to be able to break open your grief and to move out of that towards a productive life. And if you remain sort of hardened by this bitterness and despair, it becomes a permanent affliction. And it's terribly sad to see. I know Susie is... You know, people contact her and she's met up with some people and it's devastating. There was a mother whose son had died, I don't know, seven years earlier and she had yet to speak to her husband about it. They still hadn't had a conversation about it. It's just this all-consuming thing that sits in the middle of their relationship. What I try and do is talk about grief from the other side of the trauma because I think it's there that I can say that you can move on and that you can lead a joyful life. 
in some ways, and I'm not alone in saying this, you can lead a better life. This is part of the terrible beauty that exists around grief, that you can become better at life and that there's something to do with joy that comes into life that's different than happiness. Joy feels like it's something that it's deeply rooted in suffering that kind of just leaps spasmodically out of your suffering and that can be extremely powerful thing. And I think that you can find that outside of grief if you can somehow move towards, um, oh, it's hard to say what, if you can move towards the whispers and intimations of something else that exists beyond your grief, because there is something there. I'm just struck that quotes I've read from you early on in your career, it seems paradoxical that you've arrived at this humane and empathetic outlook and a kind of life of service, of, of attempting to ameliorate the damaged souls that are sort of seeking some kind of meaning or solace, right? And then early on, I remember a quote jumped out of me where you said, oh, I'm contemptuous of joy, I'm contemptuous of beauty, <laughs> contemptuous of happiness in others. It was a great quote because he said, after being a living shitpost to being a, a walking Hallmark card. <laughs> no, it was a response to a letter that came A Hallmark from... hippie, they called you. Yeah, it was like, some, I guess it was a like... disgruntled old punk who was like, yeah. oh, oh shut Nick, you've become up. everything yeah. you used to rail against. Yeah, you're a Hallmark hippie. And so I tried to, within that particular post, in a playful way, yeah. describe why I'm no longer a walking shitpost like yeah. this person is, and a kind of Hallmark card. There's a certain amount of self-deprecation that yeah. goes on within the red hand files anyway. That particular letter does point out the problems with holding a position of contempt to the world. There are reasons to hold the world in contempt, you know, and, and there's reasons to be suspicious of everything in the world. It's almost like a parlour game in a way to sit there and look at something Look at something of beauty. I'm trying to find something in this studio as a thing of beauty. but to <laughs> I won't take it personally. <laughs> <laughs> but to look at it and see it as a thing of beauty or to look inside the thing and see the kind of worm in the middle of the apple or the corruption and to be pathologically magnetised towards the contemptible nature of the world. Personally, I know that feeling. I've been there. As a young man, I gleefully took that position. As someone who's been through stuff, I find that it's not a position that I have much sympathy for these days. You know, there's too little time for contempt and too much in the world not to be awestruck. You're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. Hi, me again, Louis Theroux. Just to remind you, you're listening to the Louis Theroux Podcast. And now back to my conversation with Nick Cave. Thanks, Nick. That was great. Is that, is that, that it? Really good. I mean, I could keep oh, yeah. going. I wanted to say... Where do you start with someone who's done how many albums? Like 30, 40? No. What is know. it? 25, 30? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. 
I don't know. But anyway, I was going through the Spotify playlist. This is you and your playlists. It threw my way. Is this because you have to say Spotify a certain amount no, of times? No, you know, I know. I, you'd be forgiven for thinking that. <laughs> but I just was like, play Nick Cave and Jubilee Street. That grabbed me. I think I might have been drinking a bit. And I listened to it two or three times on the trot. And it has a mesmeric, slightly dark energy. And shout out to Warren Ellis, your musical collaborator. And the whole last act of the song is this sort of violin surge. Yeah. It's an orchestral yeah, surge. orchestral surge. Yeah. yeah. It's an exquisite, troubling song. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. I'm really proud of that song because of this sort of trajectory from abjectness to kind of transcendence yeah. within this song, both musically and lyrically. And I'm lyrically. Very, very pleased with that. For whatever reason, it made me think of Hey Joe... The Jimi Hendrix, he didn't write it, but did the famous version, yeah. which is a murder ballad, and songs that have that quality of a sort of a repeated. Yeah, it's, a, it's a sort of circular that, thing that that builds an intensity, that builds yeah. an intensity, and arrives at this moment of kind of transcendent yeah. emotion. That's kind of what we do. Yeah, <laughs> you can't always... that's our thing. Yeah, <laughs> and then the more recent stuff as well, where it's become little bit more ambient and squiggly, if I can use Yeah, I mean, I personally think the record Ghostine mm -hmm. was a, a point we got to musically and lyrically. The last it's, one was Carnage and Ghostine was the one before that, which was the one that most directly addressed yeah. your bereavement. Yeah, it had a sort of a parallel kind of purpose beyond just making a record. At the time, it felt to me that I was attempting to create a place for him. Not that it directly addresses him in the record or anything, but it just felt like if there was any way, this was the way. It's a very powerful, maybe difficult, but record full of meaning, for me at least. And that was very divisive, that record, but people have really grown to love that record. Ghosting. Yeah. Because it was post-rock? Well, it doesn't really have drums and bass and, and it doesn't have guitars. And, yeah. And, you know, there's a bunch of old fans that, wish we would return to the good old days of kind of blistering, guitar-based, four-on-the-floor rock and roll. Right. But we've just, you know, moved on from that. And it doesn't feel like a place that offers anything to us. I mean, I think that as a form, to some degree, is maybe a little kind of dead, perhaps. You, I don't you know. just said that. You just said rock was dead. There's your no, I, didn't, I didn't say rock was dead. I just... <laughs> For us. I mean, we've just done a lot of it. Yeah. You've got to keep yourself interested. You don't want to be status quo. Well, well, the, the thing that you talked about before about the trajectory of our band, I think is entirely predicated upon us destroying our back catalogue record by record. Our next record almost always flies in the face of the records before and rejects the records before and presents itself in a new way. Now, some fans love that. They feel like they're on some crazy adventure with our music. Other fans, they attach themselves to not just the music, but the period that it was made and what was happening in their own lives at that time and see any movement away from that as a kind of personal betrayal, shall we say. How dare you? Don't you know what that old stuff means to me? But for us, it's just making new music and keeping the whole thing going for better or worse, you know. I'm talking about this in this way now because I'm in the process of writing new songs mm -hmm. for a Bad Seeds record. What stage are you at? 
I've done a couple of days in the studio with Warren, but before that happens, there's a long process of just writing lyrics. And this is the pits. It's the hardest part of the whole process for me because you're just on your own in an office trying to write song lyrics, which I take seriously, you know. And I don't know, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on in your mind when you're on your own and you're starting a project with nothing. It takes quite a lot to find something that's of interest or that isn't just old residual ideas. Anyway, it's going good. It's more rhythmic, very different, very, very different sounding than what we've done before. All the good signs are there. But it's not without its anxieties. And they don't get better. I was just talking to Susie about this. The anxieties, you mean? The anxieties, you know. She says, well, you always feel this way, and that doesn't help. It doesn't help. Yeah, but this one might be the one that's just no good, you know. And I think it just requires more to make a good record. You know, I think when you're young, you can just barrel into the studio with this energy and you're smashing things and great things are coming. And you don't really have that kind of energy or you, you understand things a bit more. You also understand the feeling that you feel when you make a record is that what you're doing is like the best thing that the world has ever heard. And you kind of get into this mindset because you have to be in this mindset. And then you make the record and the record comes out and they hand you a CD, let's say back in the CD days. And it's just this little plastic thing and it's, you know, another CD. Yeah. And you kind of let down by the whole thing. But there's nothing quite like that of being in that zone, living in the sort of possible deception that what you're doing is something of true greatness. That's quite a feeling. I think we artists chase that. I think you just come to understand that it's not... You come to do things in a more measured way. So that was that. He did me the huge favour of speaking for um, several hours. It was wonderfully unhurried and we even talked a little bit outside afterwards about other podcasts. He's a fan of podcasts, it turns out, listens to quite a few of them and one of the inspirations for the book, Faith, Hope and Carnage, was these sort of long-form podcast conversations that are freewheeling, sort of intimate and open. I suppose I wanted to honour the output, like the incredible body of work, and not simply dive into the grief and the bereavement that Nick has endured. In other words, there's so much to appreciate about what Nick has created, and alongside that there exists this terrible experience that he's been attempting to make sense of and live through. You know, we spoke about the Enneagram test. Based on the teachings of the Bolivian, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, psycho-spiritual teacher Oscar Ichasso from the 1950s and the Chilean psychiatrist Claudio Naranjo from the 1970s. Oh, some people say it originated way back in like the 4th century. So I did the test anyway. There's about 100 questions. You can fill it out for free. There's nine personality types. I didn't get the one I wanted. Well, look, these are the cool ones. Individualist romantic, that's number four. 
Achiever Performer, that's number three. Investigator Observer, number five. You'd think that would be me, right? I got number nine. Peacemaker Mediator. I was a bit disappointed. But I've made my peace with being a peacemaker. In the sense that I think after initially thinking like, oh, I think I filled it out wrong. I should do it again. You know, like try and get something else. (laughs) Get a better one. But then I was like, maybe that's true. Because some of the traits are avoiding conflicts, avoiding self-assertion, which is a trait that I have. I do have the slight weakness, but also a strength of sort of seeing everyone's point of view. Anyway, there's no good ones and no bad ones. Because I talked to Nick afterwards. I actually saw him for dinner. I said, which is the bad one? He goes, they're all bad. I go, well, which is the good one? He goes, well, they're all good. <laughs> Nick told me he is an eight challenger protector whose ego fixation, mine was indolence, his is vengeance. And his vice or passion, mine was sloth, his is lust. He's definitely got a cooler one. I know they aren't supposed to be good or bad, but his is more of the artistic lead singer temperament. Mine is more of the tedious, non-committal layabout. I wasn't joking when I said that I was new to his work when I began preparing for the chat, and since then, consider myself a full-fledged convert and even evangelist. And so we'll link to one or two things in the show notes that I recommend, including his Kylie duet and the PJ Harvey duet and some other stuff. Definitely check out the Johnny Cash version of Nick's song, The Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat being both the throne of judgment on which God sits and also the electric chair. So I suggest, if you don't know Nick's work, explore, explore it. As mentioned, the book, The Death of Bunny Monroe, is excellent. The Red Hand Files is also worth checking out. More recently, as I speak, Nick defended his decision to attend the coronation of King Charles III. He said, I'm not a monarchist, nor am I royalist, nor am I an ardent Republican for that matter, but what I also am not is so spectacularly incurious about the world and the way it works, so ideologically captured, so damn grouchy, as to refuse an invitation to what will more than likely be the most important historical event in the UK of our age. Not just the most important, but the strangest, the weirdest. I wasn't invited, in case you were wondering. Spared me the dilemma of whether or not to accept. They did ask if I wanted to be on one of the buses during the Queen's Jubilee. Do you remember that? Where all the national treasures, so-called, Kate Moss, Joe Wicks, and many, many more high-calibre people went round on buses. I don't want to make a big thing out of it. It's not that I think I'm too big for it. But yeah, I didn't take up the offer. Credits. This podcast was produced by Paul Kobrak and Marn Al-Yazari. The production manager was Francesca Bassett and the executive producer is Aaron Fellows. The music in this series is by Miguel de Oliveira. This is a Mindhouse production exclusively for Spotify. Spotify.